This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Sarah, I'm beginning to feel thin, sort of stretched, like like butter scraped over too much bread. Or maybe plot scraped over too much fantasy TV show. Or maybe cold open scraped over too much airtime. Ooh, that sounds like the corrupting influence of podcasts right there. <laughs> we must cast it into the fire. Listeners, we are going to be reviewing the latest Tolkien adaptation to hit screens. Amazon's The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, has just released its first two episodes to its streaming service. We're going to be talking about it on this week's episode. And because we are nerds who like talking about mythmaking, we're going to be also covering another TV show about American mythmaking. That's the Cartoon Network miniseries Over the Garden Wall for the watch list segment. All that and more in our podcasts on this episode, episode 348 of Seeing and Believing. We thought the war at last was ended. Today, our days of peace begin. We thought our joys would be unending. We thought our light would never dim. The skies are strange. You just hear Galadriel. The moment we feared. Evil does not sleep. It waits. Beyond the darkness, tempting shadow to bury us all beneath the mountain. He has not one name, but many. If you heard of him, lad, if you heard of Sauron. Yes, we're here on episode 348 of Seeing and Believing. Sarah, my Govanen. Westu Kevin Hall. <laughs> As you can probably uh, tell listeners, that outburst of Elvish means that we are both really excited mm. to dig into the new Lord of the Rings streaming series from Amazon. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's something, I mean, we've never actually gotten to talk about the Lord of the Rings on the show before Mm-mm. in the entire show's history. Um, so we're really looking forward to finally having a chance to let our nerd flags fly. We'll get into that part <laughs> of our nerd cred here in a little bit. Uh, we're also going to be talking about another uh, fantasy story over the garden wall in our second segment with the watch list. But for now, 
Let's d- jump right in. I know that you're really excited about this too, Sarah. I cannot wait to talk about Lord of the Rings. I have been training probably like half my whole life for this moment. So I think it, I think it'll be a good conversation. <laughs> it, it is truly our destiny. So let's meet it. The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is an adaptation of material that at least to the uninitiated is slightly lesser known. Whereas The Lord of the Rings dealt with the events of the Third Age and the destruction of the One Ring and Sauron, the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power goes back a little bit farther into the second age of Middle-earth, wherein we see Sauron's origins as the great Dark Lord, as opposed to merely the second command of an even greater Dark Lord, Mm -hmm. and all of the events that led up to what we see in Peter Jackson's film trilogy. The new series follows uh, Galadriel, here played by Morvid Clark, as she seeks to uncover the hiding place of Sauron, who has gone into hiding after the Great War that ended the previous age. Along the way, we also meet Elrond and Prince Durin and a couple of other maybe familiar faces and also a lot of unfamiliar ones as well. There's a lot of different plot strands Mm -hmm. that make up this show. Sarah, you and I have only seen the first two episodes of the series so Mm -hmm. far. Uh, They premiered over this past weekend as well. So we'll only be talking about what's in those first two episodes, but there's a lot to talk about in there. So I guess to get us started, I would really, really like to nerd out with you a little bit Mm -hmm. and get a sense for, you know, what your relationship is with Tolkien's mythos as a whole and kind of how that informed the way you approached this new series. Yeah, so I was a little bit young for the Peter Jackson movies when they first came out, but my parents made a deal with me, which was that I could watch the movies if I read the books first. I think... So Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001. I would have been eight or nine at the time. Like, I was very young. So I think I first read the books right around the same time Two Towers came out. And then my parents did not know that they were creating a monster (laughs) by requiring that I read all of these books, read them obsessively, like inhaled them, distinctly remember exactly where I was when I hit the end of the book of the Two Towers, where you get that line about Frodo was alive but captured by the enemy. Um... And then proceeded to watch the Lord of the Rings movies, probably like a movie a weekend for a good two or three years, like (coughs) obsessive, probably still have the theatrical versions memorized, wore a replica of the one ring around my neck as sort of a fashion statement for a little while, read the Silmarillion at age 11 or 12, I think. A lot of it went over my head. I have since reread it and understood it a little bit more. But I lived and breathed Lord of the Rings for a couple of years at the very least. Um, And that might have hamstrung me a little bit getting into this show. So before we get into, I guess, my reaction to Lord of the Rings, Kevin, I'm curious to know what your nerd cred is and and what sort of baggage you may or may not be arriving to this show with as well. Yeah, so um, I'm a little bit older than you. So the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Peter Jackson trilogy was in production while I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, I had already read you know, the Lord of the Rings multiple times. I'd read the Silmarillion. I was in the process of working my way through the History of Middle-Earth series, which is Christopher Tolkien's compiling of all the the rough drafts and notes 
and annotating them all for true obsessives who want to read the book-length epic poem that Tolkien wrote about the events of the Silmarillion. So I was I was in deep, and I followed the news of the Jackson Trilogy's production religiously for the last, I think, two years of high school, mm-hmm. and uh, was so excited to see the original uh, the, or, or the Fellowship of the Ring when it first came out that I, it, it came out finals week of my freshman year, my very first sem- semester of college. And it's probably responsible for me getting a whole letter grade lower in my philosophy class <laughs> than I might have otherwise because I went to the midnight showing and I had an 8 a.m. final exam the next day. Oh, so needless to say, I had my priorities straight. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so that's... Basically, that was sort of the culmination of my entire life up to that point was those Jackson films. And I was, I, I mean, I loved the first film. And while I had my reservations about the second two, I was, I was all in on them. So I think that I, hopefully that establishes that number one, I am a gigantic nerd with these books and I love them dearly. They're probably more than any other work of art, they've influenced me mm-hmm. uh, more than anything else. But it also means that I'm a, I'm not the sort of nerd who harumphs at just any old change. You know, I, I can, I'm perfectly capable of meeting mm-hmm. uh, an adaptation halfway. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of maybe a good thing to, uh, to start with, with this uh, series is, you know, obviously because it is adapting this, uh, part of Tolkien's mythos that isn't as flushed out as Lord of the Rings, right? Like there's, there's appendices in the back of the, in the back of the original trilogy. Um, but there's a lot of gaps to fill in there and they aren't allowed to really pull anything explicitly from the Silmarillion. Like there's legal barriers against that. Mm-hmm. That frees up the showrunners, JD Payne and Patrick McKay to really fill in a lot of gaps with their own, um, their own canon, so mm-hmm. to speak. And to really kind of, not worry so much about getting all the details right because they're having to supply the details themselves. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's talk about that a little bit. So what did you make of the, of the details of the show? Now that we've kind of taken a bird's eye view of our relationship to the overall Tolkien mythos. I'm still, I'm of two minds about this. And I think part of it is like you, I like to meet adaptations halfway. I don't like to see something translated, you know, word for word from page to screen because I don't know, like I I feel like I have a decent imagination, but I feel like other people are better at doing that sort of work than I am. So I would rather be surprised by what somebody is going to bring in their interpretation of a work of literature. And at the same time, I think I hamstrung myself a little bit by rereading The Silmarillion a week and a half ago <laughs> because a lot of this story, it's its both the appendices of Lord of the Rings and then also taking um, its cues from the back portion of The Silmarillion as well and kind of filling in those gaps, like you'd said. It, it feels almost like it's filling in a lot of the empty spaces that Tolkien left behind because a lot of his writing in, in his histories is just focusing on this character fought this battle and died gloriously. And then there was, there was some change. Um, and it's, it is very much a bird's eye view. And so I appreciate that the show is going into the more granular detail 
And it's not remotely, I think, what I would have expected. And I'm, I'm still wrestling a little bit with the difference between how I would expect somebody else to approach this material, because I kind of would have expected them to approach it the same way that I do. And then also appreciating that there is room for the showrunners to kind of play a little bit with this universe. And again, like I'd mentioned, Lord of the Rings is very formative to who I am as a person. So it's really hard to wrestle those details and like the way that I have pictured this story for so long in my life, literally like two decades, um, and trying to disentangle myself from it and come at it from like a little bit more of an outsider perspective. And I'm finding that really difficult right now, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it. I suspect is due to the way that the show is treating its characters and not so much in the set design or the costume design or anything like that. I have no problems with any of those. The way that this show looks is working for me. And I I suspect that part of that is because there's a little bit of continuity between Peter Jackson's blockbusters and then also the design work for this show. Some of that was done by Weta Workshop for both of those. So there's a little bit of continuity there. But with regards to the characters, um, it feels a little bit less like filling in plot gaps and a little bit more like taking an updated version of the character from the books and then sort of dropping it into this world. And I'm, think- I'm thinking specifically of Morpheth Clark's Galadriel, um, who was described in the books as being, you know, headstrong, rebellious. Um, I believe in one of the additional pieces of writing that that Tolkien wrote, she's actually described as being like the kind of person who would catch up her hair and then compete in the games in Valinor, and she would beat everybody at, at their own game, essentially. And this show has interpreted that to be she is the best and the most determined at fighting. And I, that doesn't quite jive very well with me and with my own reading of this character. So I'm curious to know how you came to her. So, I mean, Gladriel might be a good place to start. I, I think I'm, I don't have as, surprisingly, because I was prepared to have problems with the characterization here, specific, partly because uh, Tolkien often did not write women very deeply. Oh yeah. Um and uh when when he did write, you know, focus more on them, they they tended to fall into into archetypes. And so which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that kind of with a 2022 sensibility, um there would be a lot of room for uh the showrunners to try to take a distinctly Tolkien creation and try to like jam it into a mold that is more agreeable to what a lot of audiences want, which uh, could backfire on them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really happy to say that I actually really liked Morvid Clark as, as Galadriel. I mm-hmm. think that um, she brings her own, she, she takes her own spin on the character so that it's not just, uh, you know, a strong, the stereotypical strong female character where she just, you know, she kicks butt and doesn't let any man tell her what to do. <laughs> you know, the, the absolute worst of what has become known as Joss Whedon feminism in mm. some corners of the internet. Just mm-hmm. the, the idea that a strong female character can only be strong in, in a very specific way. And that's sort of like, you know, beating the men at their own game. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that Morvith Clark, she does have a lot of steel in her performance, which I found uh, really gratifying, but it's it's a it's not of the of the sort that feels like uh, incongruous 
mashing together of Tolkien with more uh, contemporary sensibilities. So I, I was I was happy about that. I think for me, my complaints are more, and this is kind of just an occupational hazard of adapting Tolkien at all, is just Tolkien's sensibilities don't map very well onto the needs of a prestige television uh, show. <laughs> There's yeah. Tolkien, the the Silmarillion, and even the appendices of Lord of the Rings, and even the Lord of the Rings as it goes on and becomes grander and grander in scope. It's more of it's almost more of a history than a traditional narrative with protagonists and and dramatic conflict. And I think any show that was going to try to make it into something other than basically uh, a, a mashup of like Herodotus and uh, Norse epic poetry uh -huh. was going to fail or, or at least was going to be at least partially unsuccessful. And I think that for me is where the rings of power falls down, where there's a lot of hallmarks of 2022 prestige television making in it that aren't bad per se. They make sense and you can kind of see how everything's going to fit together it doesn't feel a whole lot like Tolkien to me. It doesn't feel like it captures the same lightning in the bottle as, for example, the prologue to Fellowship of the Ring did, where it was on screen and it was, you know, adapted for the screen, but also felt quintessentially fant fantastical mm -hmm. in a way. This, this feels more like it's a fantasy show that takes its cues from Tolkien, but isn't Tolkien per se, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, I think that does make sense. And that was one of the questions that I was going to pose to you was, is, is it possible for true like Tolkien-esque high fantasy to even be prestige TV? And right now I'm not 100% sure because I feel like a lot of, like you'd said, Tolkien is very much a history as opposed to an action epic. And I think the way that especially prestige TV in the last 10 years or so has treated fantasy. It's been court intrigue and backstabbing a la Game of Thrones and then a lot of like very large scale battles. And I think we have that scale here with the Rings of Power. And we certainly do have a few battle scenes, although they don't feel like they're quite on the same scale, except in glimpses of the past that you reach in Peter Jackson's blockbusters. But at the same time, I think Tolkien is so tapped into this sense of both wonder and grief. And I'm not sure that you can quite get that if you're so focused on the spectacle of the battle and not allowing for the aftermath of the battle and the repercussions of the battle. It's very early to tell whether or not this show is going to pull it off. So to be fair, there's only been two episodes. We haven't spent very much time with these characters yet. And I suspect that the more time I spend with them, the more I'm going to like them. There are a few characters that I do like already. But I don't know that I have that sense of curiosity about this world that I've had with other aspects of this world that Tolkien has created so far. If, if I'm going, so I, I'm going to go full Lord of the Rings nerd here. I, I'm, Sweet. So in, in the words of Faramir, when, when, 
when Frodo and Sam first encounter Faramir, uh, who if uh, he in the two towers, he's uh, the brother of Boromir. Uh, he's also a, a soldier and commander of the men of Gondor. Um, but he's, he's a little bit different from Boromir. He's, he's less brash. Uh, he's a warrior, but he's also got, um, he, he's got a softer edge to him too. He's more attuned to, uh, other things. Uh, he's, he's accused of being a wizard's pupil because he loves Gandalf so much. He's got a poet's heart. Yeah. Right. And, and one thing that Faramir says in the books, this was unfortunately didn't come across in the Jackson adaptations, but in the books, Faramir says that, um, he fights, he is a warrior, but he doesn't love the sword for its sharpness or the arrow for its swiftness or the warrior for its, for his glory. He loves that which they protect. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of a good way of looking at where this uh, where this adaptation falls a little bit short is that yes, there are a lot of battles in Tolkien. There's a lot of grandeur. There's you know there's a lot of catalogs of uh, individuals doing glorious deeds and being very noble and praiseworthy. But at the end of the day, it's not about the battles. It's not about the dark lords or the orcs or the the powerful magic it's essentially a story about creation and what is lost when uh people uh try to exploit it or try to take ownership over it that isn't theirs Mm -hmm. and uh that i think is just it's wholly absent in this adaptation and to be fair to Payne and mckay it would be almost impossible to really make that a significant part of the show and still have it be something that a lot of people would want to tune into <laughs> yes. day and day. They'd certainly have a hard time pitching that as something that Amazon would want to spend a billion dollars on. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that uh, any show that really thinks that Lord of the Rings is really about the magic and the battles doesn't really understand what Tolkien is all about. And uh, I, I think that's that's an unavoidable – That's that's – an unavoidable part of of the whole enterprise. Yeah, and I think that gets to my seed of disappointment, just to kind of get back a little bit to Galadriel as well, my seed of disappointment with the female characters. So far in these first two episodes, the story actually feels like it's revolving around female characters, which I do like very much (laughs) as, as a woman who has been a fan of Lord of the Rings for as long as I have been. Tolkien's writing of women is definitely lacking, but you'd mentioned that it didn't quite feel like Galadriel is, you know, an action hero, like strong female character, quote unquote, that we get in a lot of stories like this today. And yet she feels like she's stamped out of something very, very similar. And Mm. a lot of the other women in the show feel like they're stamped from a similar mold as well. It's not the exact same mold, but all three I believe there's three so far female main characters are women who are disappointed with their lot in life and who are very physically capable Mm -hmm. and who are longing for something beyond the borders of their life that has been bound for them by somebody else. And that similarity alone, the fact that these three women have that same core motivation is something that I personally found a little bit frustrating because that longing of there's got to be something more out there also doesn't really quite mesh with Tolkien's <laughs> interweaving themes as well. Like like you'd said, Tolkien is focused very much on the act of creation and then on what is lost. And I think the thing that works for me the strongest about Tolkien's work 
is he's focused on the grief and the joy in the wake of something passing. Like grief that it's gone, but joy that it existed in the first place and that we got to share in it. And this is something that I haven't quite seen in this show again. And again, to be fair, this is only two episodes out of eight that are going to be in this season. But the groundwork has been laid for the show to feel a little bit more like just a typical generic action-adventure fantasy story. I feel like I'm coming down very hard on this show. And there are parts of it that I do, again, very much like. It looks very good. I'm curious to see where they're going to go. I like being able to see those gaps being filled in without feeling the need to name check every single little piece of lore. They're certainly doing a little bit of lore name checking. I definitely heard one of the Valar called by name by one of the dwarves. As an oath. Yeah. (laughs) Which, uh, you know, uh, that's my pet peeve. It is a little disrespectful (laughs) on his part. But I I do find it interesting that... As the show is starting to open up, it feels like there is a little bit more allowance for the history that has come before this story and then maybe the possibility for what's going to come after that we all know is coming if we're familiar with Lord of the Rings or at least familiar with the movies. But it's that thread of grief and joy kind of intertwined and the relatively cold comfort that I think Tolkien gives when he's contemplating that grief. Like he's very focused as a writer on something that is beautiful and very far away. He talks about the stars a lot. The elves are also very much obsessed with the stars. It's a beauty that can't be touched by the darkness, but it also can't be touched by those main characters either. They're never really going to be able to attain it. And yet they can enjoy that glory and that beauty still, even when they're trapped on earth. That feels very complex. And that also doesn't feel like something that's going to come across very well in an action adventure TV show. Well, it's not going to come across in in a show that kind of really wants to, in some ways, play a little bit safe in terms of when you watch a when when a lot of audiences tune into a prestige television show, they want multiple they want multiple plot threads. Mm -hmm. Uh, They want uh, a large uh, cast of characters kind of doing their own things and maybe, you know, slowly being drawn together towards the same point. Mm -hmm. And that means that there has to be a lot of plot machinery in motion in order to kind of move us along uh, those well-defined tracks that we're that we're all familiar with, and that means that there's not a whole lot of space for ruminations on the remote, on dare I say the divine. Mm-hmm. There's, you mentioned the reference to one of Tolkien's Valar, who are kind of a cross between a a pantheon of gods and a- angelic beings. Um, and they, they get kind of a call out because the dwarves mention Aule, which is kind of the, their creator, the person who made the dwarves. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really, that's the only reference to any sort of, uh, divine being at all. And I think that in omitting that, it keeps the show kind of tethered very much to the ground level, mm-hmm. which can be, uh, can pay dividends in terms of giving us characters who feel like very real, relatable people. But it does mean that a lot of the more complex themes that Tolkien very intentionally deals with, you simply, you can't delve into the the grief of things passing, the tension of immortality versus mortality, and whether uh, one or the other is a gift or a curse, mm-hmm. unless you really think about, well, what does immortality mean who bestows immortality where does it come from 
why why do the elves revere the things they do? And the only answer to that is, well, there's a power beyond them. And Payne McKay, they don't have time to really explore those things in depth because they have to establish all these different characters. They have to get the plot wheels in motion. Mm -hmm. And so we, we're kind of, we, we have to move along those tracks instead of the tracks that Tolkien laid down. So having said that, that, you know, this might not be the, you know, the prince who comes, our, our princess finally come where <laughs> Lord of the Rings fans get the perfect Tolkien adaptation that they've always wanted. Given that that is the case, how well does this work for you as a more traditional prestige television story? How do the, if we're going to leave Tolkien's intentions out of the equation, mm -hmm. how do we kind of deal with this show on, on its own merits, say, mm -hmm. as maybe Tolkien adjacent? <laughs> That's definitely a fair point. Um, with curiosity, I think. Like, I'm curious to see what is beyond those borders that we're supposed to be exploring. Um, I'm curious to see the different ways in this in which this world is going to open up um i really appreciate actually the the side plot of the harfoots who for those who may not be in the know they're kind of ancestors for the hobbits they're sort of nomadic nobody really seems to be aware of them existing in the world yet except themselves and in the first episode we see a Harfoot village just kind of pop into existence after somebody has sort of blundered past them. And the level of attention to detail and intricacy in how these characters would have hidden their existence away from everybody else and decided to just live free from all of the cares of everybody else in Middle Earth and then see the practicality of how those characters are going to live out. I think that's that kind of existence that I would be very content to sit with and enjoy because it isn't going on this great big quest or it isn't going out and looking for a sword or a villain or for, you know, your mortal enemy. It's really just these characters existing in the world and trying to maintain that way of life. And then I think the interesting tension is going to be, obviously, if this is a very complex plot with a lot of characters these particular characters are going to end up running into the other characters in the plot later on down the line. And I think that that tension is going to get very interesting. So I'm excited to spend time in that particular corner of Middle Earth, if just because it is a corner of Middle Earth that I've never really spent any time with at all. And I don't really want to see how these characters become hobbits because that feels like that's drawing too close of a connective tissue. That's something that you do get in a lot of prologue movies or in prestige television where you have to explain how everybody got their name or everybody ended up wearing the clothes that they wear or, or something like that. But I do think navigating that tension of we're free and we live alone in the world and we take care of our own and ourselves and that's what makes us who we are versus having to enter into the rest of this fantasy world and learn how to navigate existence with other beings. That piece of tension is one that I'm really looking forward to exploring. I, I would agree that I of the things that are purely invented by the showrunners for this series, or almost purely anyway, it, I think the Harfoots chapter is most intriguing to me, mm -hmm. um, partly because it has the elements of what you say where it's 
there are a lot there is a lot of plot machinery surrounding them and arguably the the central mystery of the show is what we see at the end of the first episode where uh, a strange uh, visitor a, a, a human apparently uh, arrives on the outskirts of this Harfoot village and encounters uh, two characters two members of the of the village and we don't know anything about who he is the manner of his arrival is uh, needless to say, unusual. Explosive, even. <laughs> Explosive. And the reveal of this person's identity is going to be kind of like, that's what is sort of the the lost, the 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 TV show Lost, kind of like the mystery box allure is, is going to be, who is this person? What are his abilities? And why is he the way he is? Because he's almost entirely mute. He doesn't, he doesn't speak really, mm-hmm. or he at least speaks in ways that aren't intelligible. Um, so there's a lot going on, but I, I liked how their first introduction was just sort of, like you said, seeing them pop up. Um, there's an interesting speech where uh, the, our primary uh, Harfoot has a conversation with an elder who reminds her that nobody walks alone. We all take care of each other, and that's how we survive is we all stick together. And that kind of spirit of community-mindedness is not straight out of Tolkien, but it's you, you see his DNA in that, and you see uh, the connective tissue between uh, that philosophy of the Harfoots and Hobbiton in, in the Third Age. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. And... I think in contrast with some of the other plot lines that are being woven into this show so far, I think I find the rest of the show a little bit disappointing in that regard. It's a quest that's being set up almost not unlike the fantasy that comes after Tolkien, but also just to the level of a Dungeons and Dragons sort of plot hook where multiple characters have a rune that they're chasing that's a clue to the existence of another character or one character has the hilt of a sword that seems particularly devilish and i just could not be less interested in chasing macguffins across middle earth because that doesn't feel like that is the level of imagination that is required to set up a fantasy society that just feels like this is the way that we needed to get this story kickstarted and moving. And having that story be kickstarted and moving based on an object that is made up whole cloth, it just, it just doesn't interest me at all. I'm not really necessarily curious about the origins of these objects or even where these characters are going to go while they're chasing them. I just want to see who these characters are, and I don't feel like I've been given enough of a window of an insight into who they are as people before they have to undergo this quest. There's not a whole lot of specificity that we've gotten about a lot of these characters. So there is a there is a plot strand where uh, an elven soldier played by Ismail Cruz Cordova. Um, he is uh, a member of kind of this this watchtower uh, garrison that are watching over a village of humans whose uh, ancestors uh, assisted Morgoth in the in the wars previously. So there's a lot of tension there. Um, he's also got a burgeoning romance with uh, a woman in in that village, and it's it's the weakest writing of of the entire show. And I think part of it is that there's just not a whole lot of. It's not very sharply characterized in. in who these individuals are to each other and also just the the overall dynamics 
between the elves and the humans that they're watching over feel very, very sketched in. Like they, the, the elves are kind of high handed and the humans don't like them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, it's not really fleshed out beyond that. And it doesn't have enough time to before, you know, the, the central mystery of that plot strand, where are these orcs coming from? Mm-hmm. Uh, before that hits and then we're off to the races. And I think that's, Maybe where, where my misgivings come in is when we're not so much with the the central characters, when we're not really dealing with with Galadriel or uh, Elrond or these these halflings. There's not really a whole lot of sense of why we're seeing them, other than that there needs to be something else to sort of fill time, mm-hmm. and that's maybe where I'm most concerned is that. Even in the second episode, we're seeing some plot strands sort of just mark time in place because they don't really have a whole lot to do because we've got to keep our focus on this other part of the world and get those chess pieces all set up. Yeah, maybe it's a structural issue with TV that's gone direct to streaming. So these episodes are being released a week at a time. First two episodes dropped at the same time, but everything else for every Friday, there's going to be just a single episode. And yet... So far, there feels like the episodes are sort of bleeding into each other. And that feels kind of like um, a symptom of streaming television where every single episode drops all at the same time because it's designed to be binged and you'll end on a cliffhanger and then that'll make you want to watch the next episode. And one of the things that I do miss about like classic network television I sound like, I don't know, an old man yelling at a cloud at this point. Um, but one of the things I do miss about classic network television was that every single episode is a bounded story with themes and an arc within it. And then maybe it'll lend itself to a season-wide arc or maybe it'll just be, you know, a standalone Monster of the Week episode or something like that. But these episodes so far don't feel all that distinct to me necessarily. They do feel like the individual characters are being moved about on a chessboard and they have to make it to the end of that episode or to their place at the end of that episode. But I don't fully understand why we're seeing these particular characters in their particular stories at this particular time, if that makes sense. I, I noticed something while watching the, the second episode, which was that, you know, as we mentioned, there are some characters that kind of just they, they, they're in a little bit of a plot cul-de-sac or they don't really have a whole lot to do. So Elrond travels to Khazad-dûm to uh, to negotiate with the dwarves there for their help in a project that he's working on with Celebrimbor. And that's not really a whole, there's not a whole lot of story there. He The, the basic story is he goes there, he gets help, he comes back. Mm-hmm. But he still kind of needs to be, have his scenes interleaved with the others in order to give the episode a little bit of shape and make sure that he's not out of the spotlight for too long, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of gives his uh, scenes a little bit there. There's, it's almost like they're inventing business for him to have <laughs> yeah. rather than having a, uh, an impetus for those things to be happening. And I think that shapelessness and the inability of uh, J a Bayona, who di- directed these first two episodes to really find a shape for these first two installments is that there's not really a whole lot of attention paid to the story on a thematic level. It's all plot. It's all, mm-hmm. you know, here here's the backstory, here are where the characters are now, here's kind of their goal or their mystery that they have to solve. 
but the, the it doesn't feel like there's a thematic uh, idea uh, tying together a particular episode. Contrast that with, for example, Breaking Bad, where there was kind of an ongoing plot, and you could, it did end on cliffhangers. You want to see what happened next, but also each individual episode was kind of about a particular dimension of Walter White's experience or what his actions meant. And I guess that's what I'm looking for in future episodes of the show. I'm really interested to know if do will these individual episodes mean anything on their own or are they just a means to an end where we just kind of want to get to the next plot point? Mm, I'm going to be really disappointed if they are just that means to an end. Um, I'm curious to know moving forward, because obviously we're both going to be watching this show until oh, yes. the end. We're both very much invested in this world. Um, are there any particular characters you want to see more of? I'm interested in I'm interested in what they're doing with Elrond here. So Elrond is uh, played by Robert Arameo. He's a Game of Thrones veteran. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, you think of Hugo Weaving in the Jackson films and also just the way Elrond is characterized in the books. He's kind of he's stern. He's remote um, or if not remote, he's at least He's very cerebral. He doesn't really do a whole lot action-wise. He kind of just pre- provides characters with the knowledge they need to to proceed and uh, fills us in on the backstory a little bit. In this show, Elrond is a much more active character. He, he's traveling around. He's interacting with different characters. He's characterized kind of as a politician who you know, feels deeply personally invested in Galadriel's well-being and... Uh, the things that she's up to, but he also feels the tension of, well, we do have a high king and he's telling us what to do and we kind of have to play ball. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting tension um, for him. And I, I'm curious to see how that develops as the show goes on. I like the way Arameo plays him. There's kind of a, he's, he's, I don't want to say slick, but he's <laughs> he's definitely there, there's there's a side to him that we haven't really seen in other takes on the character where he's got a little bit of a he's he's working the angles a little bit. And that's kind of fun to see. I'd like to see more of that and see how that is developed within a Tolkien context. I don't want to see it become a Game of Thrones Tolkien edition. Yeah, but I am interested in seeing Robert Arameo kind of bring a, a slyness to Elrond that maybe we haven't seen before. What about you? Um, I mean, I'm still, I'm very much invested in the Harfoots. Um, I'm interested to see where Nori, the, our main Harfoot, who's played by Markella Kavanaugh, I'm curious to see where she is going to go and to grow as a character because she's already starting to face a little bit of that tension between the outside world and her own community taking care of this mysterious stranger who's who's crash landed outside of her village and then also trying to live up to the standards that her elders are starting to put onto her as she's growing up as as a character i'm curious to see where she's going to go i am a little bit invested in where galadriel is going to end up in particular but again like i i'm really just hoping that these characters get rounded out a little bit more into more complex characters rather than the archetypes that they currently are. I'd be really interested to see an episode where nothing happens. Mm. And by that, I mean where the characters, they don't have a goal 
to accomplish necessarily. They they don't they don't have some grand uh, design to accomplish within the the confines of the the overall season, where they just where we get a chance to kind of just see them live with each other and just interact. Um, I, I want a character building episode. I want uh, an episode again to to reach back to Breaking Bad. I want a, a fly episode where <laughs> they're kind of just in a room and they have to bounce off of each other for a little while, or uh, where we just kind of see them uh, having a conversation mm. that isn't plot essential. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm really interested in. I don't see a whole lot of that in the first two episodes, which to be fair is because it has a lot on its plate to sort of get established. Mm -hmm. But now that that is established, I'm really going to need more character work if this character-centric, plot-centric season is going to really take shape and feel like the sum of its parts rather than less than some of its parts. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. So listeners, that is our, our review of Lord of the Rings, the rings of power. We went a little bit long on that one. Our apologies, but I don't know, maybe it's more of a sorry, not sorry situation. I refuse to apologize for talking about Lord of the Rings. (laughs) We could go on and on, but we'll leave it there for now. If you've had a chance to check out those first two episodes, let us know. I, I know that some of you out there have watched it and we are, very interested in your thoughts on how it is successful, how Tolkien-ish it feels, where you think things might be going from here. Let us know on Twitter. You can tweet us at Pod or email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We crave your lore, listeners. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. We'll be talking about Over the Garden Wall here in a minute. Namari. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies and TV going. So this is kind of a triumphant return to the and TV part of Seeing and Believing. We've not done uh, television in a long time, but if anything was going to bring us back to it, it was going to be a Lord of the Rings show. It had to be Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've talked about TV together probably ever honestly so Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know i think it's a good way to kick off talking about a little bit more television so maybe we'll spend some time talking about it a little bit more and of course we did spend some time at the beginning that first segment talking about you know how important lord of the rings the the books the silmarillion all of those things were to us just kind of forming our sensibilities and our tastes. And you actually asked a question on Twitter along those very lines of of everyone out there on on the internet. Yeah, I was curious to know what's a movie or TV show uh, that was important to you as you were growing up. And we got a couple of answers back. So Ron Sturry responded back with Shane. 
He says he was only six years old at the time, but he identified with Joey, the boy. Shane is a movie that I need to see. I've, I have not seen very many Westerns. I, you know, you and me both. I've, I've not gotten around to a lot of classic Westerns. Shane is one of them. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> maybe a good watch list pick, potentially. Yeah, maybe. I'd be down for that. I've, I've liked the Westerns we've watched on the show so far. <laughs> um, and then we also heard from Christy Olson, who said that Star Wars has been her favorite since she was a little kid. Grew up watching the original trilogy on VHS, so I'm assuming not the special edition version, so the correct version of Star Wars, and making toy lightsabers out of sticks and paper. Star Wars will always be my first movie love. And you know what, Christy? Same. Yeah, I mean, I I wish I had kind of a more outside-the-box answer to that question, but for me, it was probably also probably Star Wars. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of Indiana Jones in there, too. I just thought Harrison Ford was so cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and and who doesn't? Um, but I, I was a little bit like Christy, too. Like, my friends and I would choreograph lightsaber fights in the backyard. It was, you know, it was something that I was super into back then. Feels like a rite of passage for a lot of American kids, for sure. Yeah. In terms of TV, I think my first TV love was Lost, um, which I watched in... It, it came out when I was in high school, um, listeners may not know this, but I actually grew up in part in Hawaii. So I was living on the island of Oahu while they were filming Lost on Oahu. And so occasionally you would just run into a Lost cast member at the grocery store, which is pretty cool. So what was it like growing up on an island with a smoke monster? Tell me more about that. <laughs> Terrifying. You Wait. had to run for your life like constantly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. okay, so that wasn't something that they that, – that was like actually part of the, the naturally occurring flora and fauna. Of oh, yeah. Island. You just learn to run away whenever you hear the – noise <laughs> i don't know if i have a, a very interesting uh formative tv show if we're going like strictly by things i grew up with it would probably be the 1990s spider-man cartoon so you know everyone who thinks that i'm a superhero grump now like hey you know i i know my superheroes i just nothing nothing will measure up to that 90s spider-man cartoon i guess <laughs> who knows you could definitely do worse than that so i'll be curious to know what you think about the cartoon we're going to be talking about next we're going to be covering over the garden wall coming right up and now it's time for the watchlist segment this of course is the part of the show where one host picks a movie or tv show that another host has not seen before we watch it together and we talk about it and this week sarah you picked over the garden wall which is a little bit of an outside the box pick so i'm really interested to talk to you about that so over the garden wall is a cartoon network produced miniseries from 2014 mm -hmm. it's draws heavily on fairy and folk tales to tell a story about two boys, a teenager named Wirt and his little br brother Greg, played by Elijah Wood, Lord of the Rings tie-in there, mm -hmm. and Colin Dean, respectively, as they try to find their way out of a mysterious and threatening forest into which they've wandered. Over the course of the story, more details are parceled out about how they got there, what the forest is, and what the purposes are of the horrible beast who stalks them in the shadows. <laughs> so um, there's, yeah, I already called out, there was one tenuous connection between this and kind of the Lord of the Rings uh, legendarium uh, with the casting of Elijah Wood. But I'm actually really curious to get your answer to the question of why this miniseries, like what, what, about this called out to you when you're thinking about what to pair with the rings of power for your watch list pick yeah um over the garden wall i think like you'd mentioned 
is focused on myth making, but specifically a very Americana and like New England flavor of myth making. So when I was thinking about pairing something with Tolkien, obviously Tolkien was working on writing his own myths specifically for the British Isles. And this felt like an interesting answer to that, even though it's not necessarily in the same vein of myth making that Tolkien is working in. Over the Garden Wall is also a quest. It's not really a quest to find or to destroy anything, but it is a quest to understand who these characters are. And as an added bonus, it was a cartoon, which we haven't covered a ton of on the show. And it was also a TV miniseries. So I figured if we're going to be talking about TV when we're talking about the Rings of Power, we might as well go all out and cover two TV shows because it's a miniseries, it's about the same length as a movie. So it, it just kind of felt like everything fit perfectly, even though I didn't necessarily intend for it to do so. I just thought Over the Garden Wall would be a very nice fit to go along with Tolkien. I mean, really, the only thing that would make it more perfect of a fit would be if we were recording this in October. Yes. Kind of as, an, as a Halloween episode, because as I was watching, like, I can't, it's been a while since I've watched something and thought this would be the absolute perfect thing to watch on a Halloween evening with the entire family. Yes. Because, you know, it is, it's a little spooky, but it's a family friendly kind of spooky. Um, it's, it's fun. It's, it gets dark at times, but it's just, I don't know. There's, there's a lot going on in, in this mini series that is just very interesting. And it's the sort of mini series that again, like it, it's, 10 episodes long, but each episode's only about 10 to 11 minutes. So it's a feature length film, more or less. Mm -hmm. And so you can just sit down and pound the entire thing in just an evening. And it's very worth doing that. Which is how I rewatched it, actually, for this show. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what you liked about it. Because for me, it's it's really the weird mishmash of American myths and folk stories. It, it doesn't feel like it's just adapting something like The Legend of Ichabod Crane, for example, or Salem, like witch stories or anything like that. But you can see that DNA in every single one of these episodes. So I'm, I'm curious to know, because this is broken up into 10 very distinct episodes, which episode was it where you found yourself sold on the show? Was it right from the beginning or did it take you a little bit longer to get in? It, it was right from the beginning. I, I really adored the the mixture of uh, uh, quirky humor with the horror elements. Um, and the the sequence kind of right at the beginning where uh, this horrible, monstrous hound attacks these two boys who have found themselves in a... Uh, in the cabin of a woodsman who also seems a little bit deranged. The whole series begins in medias race, right? Like it, it, it begins right in the middle of the action. We don't know how the boys got here, why they're dressed the way they are. Gregory, the younger one, is, you know, wearing a teapot on his head. Mm -hmm. uh, Wirt is dressed like a gnome. And you don't really have a clear sense of where in time we are. We're just kind of in the middle of things along with them. And so we don't know really what to expect or what the rules of this world are. So when there's this, this kind of scary monster trying to break its way into the house and there's a woodsman who 
we see in a very well animated sequence kind of with his back turned to the the viewer and he's doing something with wood and squeezing black goo out of it into a bottle Mm -hmm. we don't know what he's up to either so it it's it's spooky it's unsettling it's funny just the writing is very sharp and good and all of those elements just kind of gave me a pleasantly dislocated feeling like i don't know what to expect from this and I, I just love having that feeling from a piece of art. That makes me so happy that you appreciated this. Um, you're right. It's, it's. I mean, even knowing what was coming and knowing how the story ends, because it ends in some very unexpected ways, too. I kept being struck by how surprising I found each of the different characters that these two boys come across throughout their travels. Sometimes you'll start an episode in Medias Res as well. Um there's one episode where Gregory and Wirt are just eating dinner with somebody and we don't know how they got there. We don't understand what they're doing in that location. We don't know who this guy is. You get enough from context clues to understand like what is actually going on in that particular encounter. But the show doesn't really waste any time trying to get these characters into a specific place because the plot dictates that they must, the show is much more interested in the tone and the feel and that slightly spooky feeling that you get when you hear leaves rattling in in the end of October. And I think more than anything, the thing that I love about it is the atmosphere and the willingness to just kind of sit in it and let you sort of revel in the way that the show is presenting this like it's the end of fall and something's about to end and we don't really fully know or understand what, but we're going to be along for the ride anyway. I think my biggest complaint about this miniseries is that it was only 10 episodes. Okay. I One of the things I really like about it is because every episode is only 10 minutes or so, um, that really means that it has to get in and out with establishing its premise, establishing the conflict, having uh, things uh, heighten and ramp up and then resolve kind of at the at the end of the episode and move Wirt and Gregory on to their next adventure. It felt a lot like flipping through a books of a book of Grimm's fairy tales, mm. just kind of reading them one after another and seeing these these poor lost children in the woods what scrape are they going to get into this time mm-hmm. and being constantly surprised by number one, the form that the scrape takes and number two, the way that the scrape resolves itself. Cause sometimes nothing particularly spooky happens at all. Sometimes it's just a story about a, a, uh, a kindly man who is trying to keep open a school to teach uh, woodland animals, how to read and write. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't have the money to do it. And he's very, Uh, sad and doesn't quite know how to go about doing it without alienating his daughter and so the boys help him out and that's the end of the episode yeah and and but then there's another episode where uh there is a horrible uh horrible woman who seems to eat children Mm -hmm. uh and the way that that conflict kind of twists and turns over the course of those 10 minutes is unexpected and fun and scary as well and it's just i would have happily just continued popping those 10 minute long episodes into my mouth like popcorn one after another and 
by the end of the series, when it kind of resolves and answers a lot of the questions that it's been raising, I kind of felt like, oh, that's fine. But I think I liked it a lot more. It's just a very straight-faced Grimm's fairy tale collection. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. I think where the show concludes works particularly well for me because you kind of get those seeds from the very beginning, but the show isn't interested in belaboring the point or in telling you or signaling that this is going to be important later. We're just going to drop a little piece of dialogue that says, well, maybe this will be thematically important later on. And maybe, maybe you just aren't going to necessarily pick up on it. in, in the first watch, it does reward second watches for sure so maybe right around halloween if, if you're feeling the urge to revisit that book of Grimm's fairy tales i very well might i i think once i've got the overall story in my head for each of the episodes it's going to be fun to watch and uh absorb kind of the details around the edges the the lyrics of the songs there are a lot of songs mm-hmm. in this mini series that are that are fun and really creative the aesthetic of the show is really fun too so the the animators kind of employ this this uh effect all around the edges of the frame where it's kind of cloudy a little bit out of focus mm. which gives you the the sense of watching uh maybe an old silence picture where there's kind of that iris effect or maybe you're kind of just looking at an old daguerreotype where kind of the edges have faded away but the image in the center is still sharp Mm -hmm. and that just does so much to again establish a mood where we're not just watching oh this is a cartoon network show for kids where spooky things happen it feels older somehow and that's really gratifying Older and stranger, and I think it's also drawing on some other aesthetics in some really interesting ways. So the opening title cards all look like either wood carvings or like paper cut, like a lot of folk craft that's been put into the imagery for this show. A lot of the colors feel very much akin to the colors that you would see painted in old colonial houses in New England. There's a very heavy stamp of New England specifically on this show in the way that the characters dress, in the mood and the environment that they're moving through. It, it feels like the woods in Connecticut, which is probably the spookiest woods around that I personally can think of. But there are other unexpected elements too. So when you turn a corner, you never really know exactly what you're going to get. It's not just going to be, I don't know, a white painted village with a lot of people who look like they're from New England, you might run across a monster that looks like it's been dropped straight out of a Miyazaki movie. I'm curious to know if you saw any any Miyazaki details in here, because there were a couple that I picked up on this time I, around. I mean, the the episode that I referenced earlier, I think it's the, the seventh episode where mm-hmm. they end up in this mysterious house to get out of the rain and this large woman named Auntie Whispers comes in. Uh, is she's a very she feels very Miyazaki like. She feels like um, like Yubaba from Yubaba, Spirited sorry, yeah. Away. I couldn't yeah. remember her name. Um, she feels a lot like Yubaba from from Spirited Away. Mm-hmm. Just the the exaggerated facial features, the way that her proportions seem slightly wrong and the way that nate cash uses kind of that sense of wrongness to lead the 
viewer around by the nose a little bit in terms of what our expectations are for how this encounter is going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the way that wraps up also feels very, it's scary in a Miyazaki way as well, which mm-hmm. again is, you know, scary in a way that isn't grotesque. I mean, it is kind of grotesque, but it's not ugly or hateful, I guess. Like it's not really trying to, to, to brutalize the viewer. It's just trying to give them a little scare. Yeah. And, that I th- I think also feels simpatico with Miyazaki. Yeah, it's not mean at all, and I don't think there's a mean bone in this show's body. Honestly, absolutely not. It's kind to its characters even when they don't necessarily deserve it. And I think one of the show's other strengths is that it's not trying to tell a story with any one particular moral or lesson that needs to be taken away, which is something that I think is a trap that some cartoon shows can probably fall into. In this case, the show is just about these two boys who are lost in the woods. And at one point in chapter four, they run across an old hotel or an old tavern where there are various villagers who are there to try to give them some directions to the next place that they need to go in order to get out of the woods. And at one point, one of the characters in the hotel tells the boys, oh, it's a metaphor. Like what the woods you're going through is a metaphor. (laughs) And the woods are absolutely a metaphor. And you do learn what they're a metaphor for at the end of the show. But at the same time, it's also just about these two boys who are lost in the middle of the woods, running into weird characters and having adventures and meeting very strange people along the way. And I think the joy of the show is that it's not trying to belabor that metaphor at all. It's just interested in seeing, well, what's around this corner and what weird animal can we run into? And like, well, what if there is a fairy full of frogs who all happen to like dance music or something? In that way, it's very much a fairy story, the way that Tolkien might have have defined it. A fairy story being something that it's not an allegory. It's not trying to teach you something. It's full of meaning, but the the meaning... Uh, a lot of the meaning you take from it comes from just the joy of engaging with it on its own terms and mm. becoming uh, wrapped up in it. Um, the The way that you feel the the joy of this this show's kind of invention it it knows that it doesn't have the time to really belabor the point with uh, details of the setting and backstories and deep you know very explicit thematic statements it has to get in and out really fast and so it just sort of posits that there's a boat full of frogs and they're having a dance and it doesn't explain it's just like that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. and that feels very much like the kind of fairy story that tolkien would have really loved where things just are and you buy into it and in doing so you open yourself up to meanings that you wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. I love that connection because I did not intend for that connection between this and Lord of the Rings at all. <laughs> so I feel like you've brought additional meaning to this show as well. I mean, I, I, I'm a true Tolkien nerd. I have to bring him in even when he wasn't necessarily invited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would be curious to know what Tolkien would make of this world, um, honestly, and in particular of the conflict that's kind of running at the root of it. So I'm curious to know what you think about um, 
kind of the spookiness of the beast in particular. So we've alluded to the fact that these two boys are wandering through the woods. They're trying to get out. There is a beast that is following along behind them, which you don't really necessarily get to see all that much of. Um, I think the show mentions him at the end of episode one and at the end of episode two, and then he's just kind of gone for a little while. But he's also always there just lurking in the shadows, lurking in those like grayed out corners of of the show and the way that it's presented. And I was curious to know if that conflict worked for you or if it was something that you felt like could have also been left by the wayside. I mean, I I think it worked well enough for, for what it was. I was I didn't when, in the episodes where the beast wasn't present I didn't really feel his absence all that strongly. Hmm. Um, I think the the eventual crux of the conflict with the beast and sort of what the beast wants out of this whole story is is interesting enough. Um, it raises some interesting questions just about what darkness is and the different forms mm-hmm. it can take and how it can be engendered out of a person's own private desires and needs and fears Hmm. and how those things feed, feed into each other and can create a darkness much bigger than whatever is inside a person's heart. I thought that was interesting to think about. Hmm. Um, And I'm interested in thinking about it more once I've had a chance to watch it again and digest it a little bit more. Um, like I said, I think the show is so enjoyable that it could have gone on for another 50 episodes and never resolved the thing with the beast. And I would have been happy Mm. because I enjoyed being with the characters. And I think the ways that themes present themselves in the non beast centric episodes were rewarding enough without getting into the more sober thematic territory that he presents. But yeah, I liked him and I liked how. I, I liked the the foreboding voiceover work that was that was done with him as well. Mm-hmm. I think this is where you and I are going to split on this show is that I think it's the perfect length and that it shouldn't be any longer than this. And I'm really happy that we did get in and get what we needed to get from the show and then sort of get out. I would have I would worry about a show that takes this format and decides to just continue wandering in the woods. And I think that it does have a point to it. And I think that the point is a meaningful and valuable one, but it's also one that, again, the show doesn't belabor. And I would worry about like, I I hate dealing in hypotheticals, but if the show had gone on a little bit longer, I feel like that point might have potentially been belabored a little bit too much. I mean, maybe. I'm as surprised as anyone to find myself thinking that... I wanted a TV show to go on for longer because often I think that the problem with TV shows, and again, maybe one of the reasons why we don't review it on the show very often is that the point of a lot of successful TV shows is that if it's successful, it has to keep going Mm -hmm. because it's successful and that's sort of the, you know, success must, you know, you have to keep driving it into the ground Mm -hmm. Um, or at least in American TV. It's that way. Got to sell those ads. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the way uh, a lot of British TV shows, they they have a story, they get, they, they tell it and then they end. And what you end up with is something a lot more self-contained and, and dramatically satisfying. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no, like the British version of the office 
is my preference over the American version simply because the UK version has 12 episodes and a Christmas special and it's done and you feel like you've gotten a good conclusion for all the characters. The American office goes on and on and on until you're kind of sick of it. Mm -hmm. So that's a digression, but I think that's maybe a testament to how good I think Over the Garden Wall is, is I felt like it did have fertile territory to explore more, um, to maybe not be in such a hurry to get to its destination. Hmm. Um, A movie or a TV show about wandering, I feel like would be the perfect TV show to sort of let its characters keep taking more and more detours because uh, it's all about the journey, not the destination, if I, can be, <laughs> yeah. if I can be cheesy about it. I think that's fair to say. At the same time, I am glad that this show understands the importance of an ending because in, in a way it's really about endings and how things come to an end, whether that's the end of innocence or the end of a life or the end of a journey. And I think there's a really smart line that's said by a background character at one point during episode nine, where a group of school kids are going into a cemetery to go hang out and do perfectly legal things, as they say out loud, <laughs> probably to get around the censors. Again, the, the writing for this show is incredibly smart. But there's a throwaway line where one character says to another that you're you're limiting the universe to human understanding. And then you can tell that these two kids, like they're high school kids, they're having a deep philosophical conversation of the kind that high school kids will have where nothing's really going to be solved. But what's important is that the conversation was had anyway. And I think what's also important is that that conversation does also come to an end, just like this show does, because the point is in that journey and in coming to that journey, but also coming to the conclusion of that journey and maybe not learning the lesson that you're going to learn from it. Because again, I don't think that the show is trying to impart a lesson, but it is giving its characters in that very brief space, the chance to expand out into the world and then to retract back into themselves and to grow a little bit more as people. And I just, I I love that so much. And I don't want that to be, I don't know, changed by any stretching out of that journey. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And it's it's no wrong thing to leave the audience wanting more, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the fact that I did want more and it was content to end where it did, I, I appreciate that even if I'm slightly disappointed that we didn't get to see Wirt and Greg have other spooky forest adventures. <laughs> Which of their spooky forest adventures did you like the most? Oh man, I I I really did enjoy their encounter with uh, the the tea magnate. The the partly because he's voiced by John Cleese, and I think John Cleese is just so funny. And the way that he the way his performance evokes this guy who might be going crazy, might know he's going crazy, but isn't sure what he can do about going crazy. So he just talks about going crazy all the time. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious and spooky in just the right proportions was wonderful. Uh, the uh, the episode with Auntie Whispers uh, was also a big favorite. Mm-hmm. I appreciated the second episode where they're at a harvest festival with people who may or may not be wearing pumpkin costumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I liked. I, I thought it was funny, and I think the way it concludes 
with a bunch of skeletons getting up out of their graves and dancing around. And then one of the characters telling Wirt and Gregory, oh, you, you, you can go if you want. You'll always in, you'll, you'll end up here. Most people always do eventually. Yeah. I think it's just a wonderful little, you know, dig of the knife under the ribs at the very end. Uh, I don't know. Those are my favorites. What about you? Yeah, that one definitely stands out to me. Um, and then also the the steamboat episode where there are a bunch of frogs on a steamboat for no apparent reason. And they seem to be enjoying a bunch of music. And all they want is to be able to enjoy dance music without having any of that interrupted as they go on to the end of their particular journey as well. It's just so deeply weird. But the thing that stands out to me is also just the little details that you get interwoven into each different episode. So there's a fish that's kind of a recurring character that's just sitting in a boat and the fish is fishing in the pond or the lake or the river or wherever that boat shows up. And it's not commented upon. It's just a fish that happens to be above the water fishing for what we don't know. It just exists there. And that feels just the right level of this is deeply strange, and also this is a very pleasing image to look at, is kind of that combination that really sums up this show for me. It makes sense in a way that all good sub-creation makes sense to bring in Tolkien once again. (laughs) Can't argue with that there. (laughs) Well, listeners, that is our review of Over the Garden Wall. If you've had a chance to see this, I mean, it is currently streaming on HBO Max, so if you haven't had a chance to see it, it's great autumn viewing uh we'd be interested to know what your thoughts were on it if you have already seen it you can always tweet us or email us as we've already said uh next week we are going to be uh reviewing a little movie for the watchlist segment called the savages um i'm really excited about this one it's directed by tamara jenkins from 2007 it's got laura linney and philip seymour hoffman in it so needless to say it's going to be great lots of great performances in that one three words every woman likes to hear philip seymour hoffman (laughs) sold can't can't argue with that we'll be pairing that with a review of the silent twins as well so it should be a good episode tune in next week but that does it for this week's episode seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm your host kevin mcclinathan I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing Numarie. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.